0: You are listening to The Flash one Podcast with skill and more. Welcome listeners to a special edition of the Flash F1 podcast, the internet's fastest growing Formula One podcast. Today we have a very special guest and before we get to this individual, I kind of want to back it up a little bit. One of the things that we really strove to do with this podcast, one of our primary objectives, our, our mission statement, if you will, is that we wanted to make the sport more accessible and we wanted to grow the sport in North America. We know that a lot of fans in North America either didn't grow up with the sport, they're new to the sport, or maybe they have no familiarity with it at all. So a lot of what we try to do, especially in our our language, in our discussion, and our explanations, is try to break it down and make the sport a little bit more accessible and provide a little bit more understanding to newer listeners, to newer viewers. One of the ways that we've done that is by bringing on special guests who can bring their expertise and their perspective to the sport. We've had Tim Haraney from TSN, we've had F2 driver Nicholas Latifi, and today we have a very special guest that goes by the name Christian Silt. Christian is an extremely well-respected and well-renowned journalist in the world of economics, but specifically economics as it relates to Formula One. Christian has written and contributed to CNN, Forbes, BBC, Bloomberg, Routers, The Financial Times, and many, many more. In 2007, Christian and colleague Caroline Reed launched a website called FormulaMoney.com, and FormulaMoney.com has since spawned an incredibly successful Twitter account, which I I highly recommend you follow. It's recently been verified, which is super, super exciting, um, and something that I think really recognizes the hard work that both Caroline and Christian have put into the platform. But Formula Money really began in 2007, and I frame it up, I, I think of it really as a financial services think tank for Formula One in the sport. They do a lot of consultancy, they do a lot of reporting, and they do a lot of investigatory work around the sport and the economic functions of it. In 2009, as part of the platform, they launched what's called the ROI review, which breaks down the advertising revenue of the sport. They break down the advertising value equivalency of brand exposure for companies involved in F1 to help understand whether really companies get an ROI on the investments that they make in the sport. In 2016, they launched the incredibly important GP attendance report, which does analysis and financial breakdowns of the attendance of individual events around the globe. And in 2018, they launched the Formula Money Sponsorship Database, which is generally understood to be the finest and most complete database of Formula One money sponsorship. On the internet today so they do a lot of great work they do a lot of investigation they do a lot of journalism and they do a lot of consultancy work they are really generally considered to be the absolute gold standard of journalists with respect to formula one and the financial side of the sport so we're incredibly excited to have christian on today we're going to talk about a couple of different things we're really going to talk about how the economics of the sport works i think a lot of viewers in north america are used to traditional north american team sports whether it be the nba the nfl or or maybe North American competitive racing series like IndyCar and NASCAR. Formula One's a very unique beast, partly because of its governance from the FIA, partly because of its ownership with Liberty Media, but also partly because all of the teams are individually owned and operated as well. And all of these different organizations, whether it's the FIA, Liberty, or the teams, and naturally, they're all competing for a piece of the financial pie. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But as soon as we're back, we are going to connect with Christian, live from London in the United Kingdom. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for Flash F1 Official. Listeners, thank you very much for rejoining us. Uh, as we discussed a couple of minutes ago, we have an incredibly esteemed guest joining us. Joining us today is Christian Silt, famous from the Formula Money platform. And a lot of the journalism and investigation work that he's done around Formula One and its finances throughout UK um, and, and the globe, really. Uh, I think, Christian, maybe congratulations are in order first. I, I don't know when this happened, but I, I saw that the Formula Money platform Twitter account has been verified. You get that glorious blue check, and I think that's just a great recognition for all the hard work that you and your team do.
1: Yeah, no, we, I think we've had that for a little while. But you're right; it's uh, it's unusual because it's not very common. Um, and yeah, I mean, we I think we must probably be the only Twitter account that focuses on the business of F1, um certainly in media that is verified. So yeah, I mean, it's and then you know there are very few. Twitter sources or indeed media sources at all, really, that, that focus on the business
0: of our. Absolutely, and so much of the social media that surrounds the sport is, for for the most part, unsubstantiated rumors, retweets, and things like that. So to have that verified check mark, especially for somebody that's maybe not familiar with your work and the work of your organization, I think it goes a long way to impress upon people that the investigation and the the subject matter that you're bringing is really, really well substantiated and well investigated.
1: Yeah. No. Well, thank you. I mean. I think you know. I mean, my background really is as a business journalist, um, and I uh, I kind of only got involved with Formula One really as a as a coincidence um, because I, my background it was writing about the leisure sector and the the, the entertainment sector, uh, and then I ended up working for a magazine that was uh, basically uh, owned by uh, Formula One itself, um, which was a business publication at the time, um, and it, it, the sister publication was Formula One Magazine. Um, and yeah I worked for uh, basically it's uh, the other publication in the stable that was called Euro Business um, and it was a pan-European business magazine and I was writing about the hotel industry uh, um, and the theme park sector as well also for the uh, the, the publication and um, then when that closed back in 2004 I started to write freelance um, because it was the magazine had been owned by formula one it covered a lot about the uh the business of formula one at the time which was quite rare so when i was working for it uh i started writing about the the amount of money that it costs to sponsor races and the uh the, the the costs of uh, to sponsor to sponsor teams and drivers etc and then the, the, and also the cost amount of money it costs to run races um, so you know that's what I was writing for a, a, a little bit about as well a Euro business and I uh, started going to the races then with the magazine um, and then yeah when that closed in 2004 I think it was 2004 um, I'd already made a number of contacts in uh, Formula the through writing at the magazine and uh, really we realised at the time myself and my colleague Caroline, who was also working for the Formula War magazine at the time, which was the sister publication, as I said, I mean, we'd made a number of contacts and we realized it in F1. We'd realized that uh, there really wasn't anybody writing for the media in general that was focusing specifically on the finances of the teams. And back then in 2004, it was, you know, I mean, the team's finances and the overall finances of the sport were a fraction of what they, were, they, they are now. I mean, we're talking out from off the top of my head. I think the revenue is about a third of what it is now. It's like about one point eight billion now, Formula One. And I think back then in oh four it was somewhere in the order of five, six hundred million. It was something like that. Um but you know, nobody there's still big numbers, but nobody was um covering it on a regular basis for the uh, certainly not the UK papers and we're based in London and England. So, you know, we started writing about it for the um the papers then and um really it's gone on from there. I mean we over the years we've launched a number of you know, brand extensions to what we do because we started out just writing about team finances race finances and cost of sponsorship and uh, you know various different issues that were going on at the time the court cases and this sort of thing um and then over the years i mean we generated um a great deal of our um, own proprietary data in terms of analysis of um what each sponsor is paying analysis of uh, or calculations of what each sponsor is paying calculations of um uh, how much each race fee is how much the broadcasters are paying. And this came through interviewing large number of uh, you know, a huge number, in fact, over the years, huge, huge number of, of the key players and uh, pouring through thousands of pages of company documents. And then, you know, over the years we started to uh, people started to ask us whether we produce release the data publicly. So we started producing printed reports containing data about the finances of teams, the finances of F1. Uh, overall, um, and then, you know, now we do that digitally. So, you know, that's essentially what formula money is. It's now, you know, we write for the papers and magazines all over the world. And, uh, then we also produce, uh, uh data about the sport and um, we give consultancy.
0: It's amazing. And it's funny, because the initial two questions I had were really to lead to another and you've answered them all. But I was going to ask one, how do you get into journalism? And you explained that because (laughs) journalism was something that you had already been involved in. And you mentioned that it was business journalism, specifically corporate finances, stock market, etc. Yeah. And the second question was, did, did you have a passion for F1 or was that something that was, that was earned based on your time? Because I think the third question was really like, when did, if you had a passion, when did it and your journalism kind of intersect? But you, you kind of explained that it all happens organically.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's correct. I mean, when I started uh i mean look when i was at college um i was a, certainly was a fan of f1 and had more time i had time really to watch the races then yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you know when i got my uh yeah i mean that is quite a you know quite a challenge really when you're working um as we do um you know 24 7 often um but i mean it's you know so when i was at college i, I certainly had a, a lot more time to watch the races and follow the sport then and then you know but then obviously when i uh started out quite early, I mean, I started working in two thousand um and then as I said, it was basically by two thousand and two thereabouts that I started working for uh, uh as i said basically because the magazine that was owned by f one itself um so wow. that was a couple of years after I started work so after you know literally after a couple of years after I started work, so that became more of a um uh you know I was kind of already involved essentially writing about the uh uh, writing about the business of f1 then and then that kind of transformed my my interest and sport kind of transformed more into being uh, writing about it than you know being uh, somebody that was just following it on TV.
0: When you first began writing for F1 magazine and your focus and your concentration was really on the business side of the sport and business related uh, verticals did you find that there was a lot of resistance within the industry when you began poking and prodding and researching and pulling data? Were people accustomed to people you know sniffing around and compiling data and, and sharing data? Was that something that the industry was used to? Was there resistance or or were people generally okay? Because I, I have to imagine the perception of the Bernie Eccleston era was mm. that very guarded. Uh, there was something of a fortress around the sport and its yeah. finances, and it was very well guarded. But what was your experience like when you began doing that line of work?
1: No, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that certainly, back then, it was more... Um, Yeah, I mean, certainly, I'm trying to think, really. I mean, it's a, a long time ago, isn't it? I mean, it was for sure more guarded. There's no question about that. I mean, I think... There's also an element of, of, of resignation from a lot of people in Formula One still, and back then and still now, to the extent that if they're producing documents that end up into the, uh, you know, that are that are released publicly, if they're producing documents pub- released publicly, they're kind of resigned to the fact that the, that somebody's going to dig them up, and that's my job. And I mean, so, you know, it's kind of like, in many cases, I'm sure that the, the entity, whatever it may be, whether it's Liberty Media now, or in the past it was Bernie Eccleston, or whether it was the team's, whatever i mean we've had run-ins with all of them really because you know we've published documents that they've released or we've got information that they uh, uh connected to you know to the, the the entities that they didn't want released but you know once they're kind of aware that particularly with published documents once they're released there's nothing they can do about it and i mean we're in a situation now where i can't really go into too many details but we've got a whole host of documents from uh, uh, a, a very significant party involved with the sport that um, a whole host of documents literally thousands of pages that, that were released and one wonders if it should they were released publicly uh, I found out about them by sheer chance and uh, I'm not sure that the entity involved intended to release them publicly but they were available if you knew where to look on its website
0: good gracious we, uh, <laughs> we certainly look forward to seeing, uh, seeing your work on that it's an interesting I think maybe one of the questions I have for you is for, for many, and maybe from a North American perspective, our, our optics and our, our viewpoint of professional sport is, is a little bit different here. North Americans are typically conditioned to what we consider the big four sports, the national hockey league, major league baseball, the national football league, and and the NBA. And each one of those major professional sports bodies has taken a very different approach to the modern world of media. So talking about media uh, platforms, uh, um, engagement with social media, encouraging their players to engage, encouraging their voice, their players to have a voice and the teams to have a voice on social media. And we've seen some real success stories in North America. The NBA's done a tremendous job of embracing social media and streaming platforms, and it sees continued increase in revenues year over year. And the NFL, for all of its successes, which are really driven by strong gate and a very healthy national TV deal, it hasn't embraced streaming platforms and it hasn't embraced social media at all. And it's very, very controlling of what is posted, what fans can post. Whereas in the NBA, the NBA has a very, very loose policy around social media. And if a fan wants to retweet a video or shoot a video in an arena or take a snapshot snapshot of something on their TV, they're okay with this because it helps grow the brand and helps expose the sport. Under Bernie, the Formula One was very much criticized for its lack of engagement with social media, with streaming platforms. And I I think the assumption, and I I think you probably better than anyone can speak to this, but I think the assumption or at least the excitement of the Liberty Media Group buying formula one in early 2017 for almost four and a half billion dollars that as a publicly traded company that's listed on the nasdaq that i think there was this belief that they would embrace social media that they would embrace streaming and that it would very quickly become maybe a new vertical of revenue because and i'll let you speak to this but i think principally formula one's revenues are its tv contracts and the hosting fees and i think the assumption or at least mine was that hey we're going to be able to grow our business through streaming and social media has that happened to all? Has has it happened at the rate that people were expected? Has it been a disappointment?
1: No, I mean, it's barely happened. I mean, obviously, uh, as you probably are well aware, I mean, when they launched the streaming platform um, last year, it was beset with difficulties. I mean, so they've really botched the launch. But I mean, in advance of the launch, I mean, forecasts uh, from, you know, the the people that should know within the industry, uh, analysts and the like, um, they were projecting only around 100,000 subscribers in the first year. Now, whilst they wow. were, yeah i mean low 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 number now whilst the um actual figures and that was worldwide and whilst the actual uh, uh, attained figures have not been um released uh, have not never been released by liberty which is interesting in itself they have released breakdowns of the financial results for uh, the digital media division which we wrote up for forbes a few weeks ago and um, i forget the precise figure but i think it made a two million dollar loss so you know it was a, a time that the amount coming from uh, from um, uh, streaming so from subscriptions was a very small amount. It was single digit millions. I forget the, the precise figure. And then there was another bank. I think Morgan Stanley could be could have been Merrill Lynch. I think maybe Merrill Lynch. I think they uh, they produced a forecast showing over the next three or four years how much uh, revenue would be coming from digital media, and it was what they termed uh, not material. In other words, again, single digit millions. It's just not materialized. I mean, and there's not there are a number of reasons for that. As we said, the botched launch definitely not good. Um, when you lose a customer, um, and it's not this is not a problem unique to Formula One, but any, any business really. Once you lose a customer, you know twice as difficult to get them back than it, it was to get them on the hook in the first place. Um, so that's a problem for them in the long run, or medium to medium to long run, um, or short, medium, and long run. In fact, so you know that that that's a problem there. But then beyond that is the um, the fact that the streaming marketplace has become, even in the past twelve months, and 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 indeed it's not really even the way the true tsunami hasn't even begun yet. You know, it is, the streaming marketplace has become incredibly uh, crowded. Um, whether it's HBO, whether it's uh, Disney, whether it's Universal, whether it's other sports, individual sports, whether it's sports broadcasters like ESPN. I mean, you know, a lot of different products um, are on the are on the marketplace already and coming onto the marketplace place crucially very shortly. So, you know, Formula One has to compete with that, and it doesn't compete with it in the context that they are uh, broadcasting its races, let's say, or even in some cases broadcasting other sports. It has to compete with it in the, uh, on two grounds. Number one, uh, the fact that, as Formula One itself has said on many occasions, it is essentially an entertainment property, and therefore it's competing with other entertainment properties. So uh, that's on a general level. On, on a more specific level... Consumers really only have a certain amount of dollars in their pocket. They're, I don't believe, and I'm, I'm quite sure that history will prove this out, that, that many people are going to be uh, of the mind to buy many, many, many different streaming services. I think we're talking about, you know, one or two perhaps. And so Formula One has just it's got a lot of competition that's coming on the horizon. And, and that's not good for F1 TV, especially after the, the botched launch. And um, but then, you know, on top of that, there's the fact that... Um, Formula One's audience is traditionally older, um, and although Liberty's tried to, and is trying, and in certain sense is doing quite, a, uh, has done quite a lot to turn it turn it round um, uh, in terms of making it more accessible, social media, etc. It's still got that traditional core fan base, and that traditional core fan base is not as accustomed to viewing races on a small screen, and is more interested in. Viewing them on a bigger screen, especially in the states where you know you can just pop on ESPN and you're paying a, a subscription for that already, and you watch it on there. I mean, why would you? Why would you get the F1 TV as well? I mean, I think that's that's another challenge, really.
0: That's interesting, and, and it's funny that you bring up the demographic piece because I, I think I fall into so. If we flash back a little bit, I think one of the criticisms of Bernie was that he was content marketing Formula One to a very specific demographic, and it's not necessarily the demographic that I think a lot of American sports leagues would want to appeal to, that plus 40, that plus 50 wealthy, affluent demo in North America. I I think the aspirations are if you want to grow the sport and you want to make it sustainable, you need to get into that ultra, ultra, I, I wouldn't say affluent, but you need to get into that younger demo of that 18 plus, that 24 plus that 30 plus demo who can buy into the sport, buy the merchandise, buy the screaming platform. And in my experience, I, and it, this is a criticism less of maybe formula one, but maybe their relationship with their TV partners. I, I was interested, genuinely interested in the F1 TV pro app. And we went to, we went to subscribe because it seemed like a convenient way to get the races because we aren't always at home. And I, like a lot of North Americans, I've now, we, there's this phrase in North America called cut the cord, which is, yep. Hey, I'm going to subscribe to my cable providers, internet platform, but I'm not going to subscribe to their cable package. And, and I'm one of those customers. So this seemed like a great way that I would, be able to continue to watch formula one live but in canada as it is in a lot of countries the most the most relevant component of that streaming package which is the live race isn't available because they need to protect their domestic or their canadian tv partner which in this case Mm -hmm. is tsn which in the in the u.s that doesn't seem to be the case and maybe you can speak to this what i didn't realize is that NBC and Formula One had something of a disagreement and NBC ultimately walked away from an existing contract and they end up having to partner with ESPN for either a profit share agreement or a $0 contract?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of the specifics, but I mean, the, the net result is that Formula One is not getting a fixed fee from the ESPN. So if it's getting a profit share, then that, that, that's as may be, but it's, it's not getting a fixed, fixed fee. And NBC had a $40 million fixed fee on the, uh, on the table for seven years. Um, uh, starting last year, um, but they yeah they withdrew the offer because Liberty refused to um, uh, drop the F1 TV app in the states and um, and obviously that's as we were saying I mean, that uh, it, it, it has not lived up to expectations whether it's in terms of the actual product itself or financially so Liberty's lost on on three fronts they lost on the development of the app they lost on the uh, the, the actual fact that they didn't generate uh, anywhere near as much uh, they didn't live up to its expectations as much as they thought in uh, in the States or indeed globally. And then they lost the third time round when uh, you had ESPN and there may well be others. ESPN, uh, NBC, sorry, NBC is the one we know about. There may well be others. But NBC walks away because they refused to compete with it. So, you know, it, it, it's just, it's been, a, in my opinion, a complete disaster. And then obviously it bringing them right up to present day, as you may well have seen earlier today, they're now talking, in fact, they're going to be streaming the Mexican Grand Prix for free on twitch which i just think is the ultimate insult to really anybody that paid for the f1 tv it's not necessarily going to be available for free on twitch in the in the countries that you've got the f the f1 tv subscribers but the insult is the fact that it, it, it is evidence that liberty does. still hasn't really decided what its uh st- what its uh, digital strategy is is it twitch is it f1 tv what about all the money they invested in f1 tv is that going to be wasted if if it, they turn to Twitch, I mean, it just looks like they're stabbing in the dark to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think for me, one of the more disappointing pieces of that transition from NBC to ESPN, and and let's be honest, ESPN is very much the dominant sport national sports provider oh. in the United States. And they demand, from a cable provider perspective, they demand higher subscription fees than probably any other network. But NBC has a, a vast network of regional um, Broadcast partners, national broadcast partners. They have their own sports network partners. And they were doing a tremendous amount of work to leverage their entire network to promote that F1 property. So that seemed like a very short-sighted move by Formula One. And that Twitch news as well, for me as a fan, not even so much as an external analyst or an observer, that bothered me because... I'm now paying not for the F1 app, but I'm paying for the app for the Canadian broadcast rights holder at $20 a month to watch two races. And in this case, you know what? I'm really only paying for one because I could alternatively have watched one of them for free on Twitch, which to me was a little bit shocking. And to your point, is very much a stab at the dark in terms of just trying to find traction somewhere while potentially alienating their actual subscribers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know... As I think I tweeted actually earlier, I mean, you cannot deny, I think it'd be impossible to deny that Liberty has uh, tried to uh, and and has made great strides in terms of uh, boosting uh, Ethel's uh, presence in social media and on social media and its digital presence uh, in general. There's no doubt it's done that. What if it's failed to do? Is uh, capitalise on that commercially, and if you look at um, the finances of Formula One, I don't have the specific figures, but I mean uh, in front of me. But the uh, you know since Liberty came on board and got got the keys to the sport, um, it's uh, you know it have a very very modest increase in revenue, and the, the costs have increased, so therefore uh, it's made losses, and and that really is the uh, the bottom line. It's all very well and good um, having. Um, uh boosting popularity of the sport but i mean ultimately if you can't translate that into uh, into a bottom line uh, boost then what exactly have you achieved i mean i i don't really see i don't see the point it's not a charity
0: essentially
1: Interesting. you know i mean that's the thing i mean formula one they almost they're treating formula one as if it's some kind of a public service you know uh, across you know slash charity i mean and that's just not the case we're talking about a business really and uh the theory the way i see it is that they they seem to be of the opinion that uh that, that boosting the popularity of the sport will uh de facto lead to a boost in the uh the bottom line and that is only a percent not the case it's a classic mistake in fact in uh uh in sports in general um and they're finding it out the hard way because the uh uh, they've, they've, they've no doubt increased the popularity of Formula 1. Uh, you know, all you have to do is look at the Netflix Drive to Survive. I mean, and the number of people that tell me that they got into watching Formula 1 in the States because of that series, it's, it's huge, yeah. But, I mean, it's, what's going on in the States? Yeah, they're giving away the TV rights to ESPN for free. Well, <laughs> you can have as much drive to, interest from Drive to Survive as you like, but if you give the TV rights away for free, you've just lost a massive chunk of money from the market.
0: Stupid. My my experience was very much the same where a lot of coworkers were very, very excited about the Drive to Survive series, mm. but for whatever reason, whether it's a paywall or whether it's a subscription service or whether it's the fact that in Canada is broadcast on a provider at a time that's not necessarily accessible, that 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 excitement doesn't translate into dollars and ultimately operating income for the Liberty Media Group. And maybe on that question, I, I think the assumption was always that look, if Liberty's gonna be able to do one thing very, very quickly, they're gonna be able to turn around the digital fortunes. And to your point, their social media presence, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or YouTube, and I have to give their team a tremendous amount of credit for the quality of work that they're producing to bring, I, I would say, um, highlights, highlight packs from free practice and from qualifying and from the races and interviews, getting that onto YouTube in a timely fashion so that it's yeah. accessible and it's still relevant is, has been great. But I, I think, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit well, because it kind of ties into this conversation about ESPN and effectively hosting these races at no cost. It, it seems, and it makes sense that Formula One, the Liberty Media Group, could potentially eye the U.S. market, this massive country of 360 million affluent TV viewers, as an untapped market. And Austin's doing well, and it got off to a slow start, and it's gained some traction. But I think the ambitions, the expansionist ambitions of Liberty Media is, look, if we want to crack the U.S. market, we need to have a second race or a third race. And it looks we look closer, it's not there yet, but we look closer than ever, that we may see a race on the outskirts of Miami and Miami-Dade county but the the articles and the news breaking related to that is formula one wouldn't potentially see hosting fees out of miami anyways and that they would be effectively giving up that race for free is that true and how does that tie in once again to their growth strategy if they're giving away the tv rights in the u.s for for nothing and potentially giving away races without hosting fees
1: yeah well a very good very good point i mean and yeah i mean exactly as you just say i mean i've Certainly, the previous iteration of the race in Miami, which was the Downtown um, uh, project. I mean, I saw the documents for that, and there was no. I think it's spes- it stressed that there wouldn't be any government funding. And as, as I'm sure you know, the uh, F1's model tends to be, um, or has historically tended to be, uh, government funding um, really covering like the hosting which av- averages about 30 million dollars a year and then you know you use the ticket sales um uh, the, the the actual race organizers would use the ticket sales to uh, cover the running costs thereabouts so you know the uh, the, the initial miami uh project certainly it was uh, made it very clear that it was um no government uh, no government funding there or at least essentially zero um and then yeah i mean look the um um the the the, the idea of giving away a a race as i said i can only uh see that as being um part of the mentality that if you increase f1's popularity you will automatically uh uh make a profit and that is just completely false flawed and dangerous really a dangerous mentality because the long-term future of the sport jeopardizes the long-term future of the sport and and of course the worrying aspect really is that uh Liberty came into Formula One with no uh, background in uh, racing uh, and very little background in sport except for its ownership of the Atlanta Braves. So, you know, it, it, you have to wonder whether this is just a gamble or whether uh, or, uh, you know, or how much business experience the move is based on because giving away uh, TV rights, giving away uh, races, um, I mean, that can't go on forever.
0: One of the things that I think North American analysts have been quick to point out, and, and I, I credited earlier the fact that the NBA has been very quick to embrace social media and streaming media platforms, et cetera. That said, they, they haven't necessarily found a way to monetize those. And while North American sport leagues have continued to see huge revenue growth year over year, that that revenue isn't necessarily gate revenue. It's not necessarily ticket revenue. All of this huge increase in revenue that these leagues have been experiencing have been something of... And I I don't know that it's necessarily a bubble, but as an external analyst, I would fear that it is that as more and more customers are cutting the cord and abandoning their traditional cable box and abandoning their traditional satellite box, that the only thing that networks find that consumers are tuning in to watch are live sports and networks are Climbing all over each other in bidding wars to get a hold of these properties. And I I don't know that this is necessarily something that will go on forever. But when you look at the NBA and the NHL and Major League Baseball, um, to a degree, the vast majority of their revenues are these TV contracts in 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 F1, we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that F1 predominantly or principally dri- generates revenue via its television deals, uh, global television deals, Italy, Japan, the UK, France, et cetera, but also hosting fees. What what is the future of the sport in your perspective from a growth? Because at this point you look at the calendar next year, we could see 22 races. I don't think the teams or the drivers could survive a 23rd or a 24th race. So you're, you're effectively tapped out in how you could generate revenue via that channel. What is, what is the growth path for the sport if it's not via additional TV revenue? And we have to assume perhaps that maybe that's already at its peak. Right.
1: Well, I mean, that's a big and a very good question, but I mean, um, what happened uh, earlier this year, which will be uh, uh, um, manifest itself next year, is that um, Liberty and uh, re-signed or ex- uh, signed new contracts with a number of races. There were five: Spain, Britain, uh, Italy. Forget the others; I can remember them if I think hard enough. But uh, there were five races, and then obviously they signed a the new one in um, uh, Holland. And we've got um, if Holland happens, but apparently it is. Um, and then we've got a new one in um, Vietnam uh, coming next year, which uh, which was done, I, I believe, slightly earlier than this uh, this year. But nevertheless, um, so we had a series of renewals, and then we've got Hong, um, Holland and, and, and Vietnam, which will boost, as you say, the number to 22. Um, now, the deals that they signed in terms of the extensions, in particular, well, it was Mexico, for sure, is was another one, uh, but... Uh, Spain, Italy, and Britain, for sure, they were cut-price deals. Now, Britain, we know this uh, as, good as, you, as good as facts can possibly be, where in the latest uh, accounts for uh, their financial statements for the company that runs the, uh, the, uh, the track, uh, Silverstone, the British Grand Prix track, um, they make it quite clear that due to the timing, um, uh, there's no need to go into the complexity of it, but due to the timing of, uh, of when they were paying their fee under the previous deal, which was after the race, and when they're paying their fee under the upcoming deal, the cheap one, which is before the race, they're going to end up paying two fees in the period of 18 months. Now, you have to bear in mind that this uh, British, the company that runs the British Grand Prix was uh, in so much difficulty that really cancelled the race. I mean, you know, they, they pulled the plug on the race, they activated the break clause, uh, and it was re-signed under this cheap deal earlier this year. Um, they were on the brink, basically. So the idea of them paying... Two uh, uh, race fees within an eighteen-month period. should theoretically be catastrophic for them, but they state in their financial statements that paying these two fees is not going to be a problem at all. So the only possible way that that could be the case is if the new fee is really just hardly registrable. Uh, uh, so gotcha. you know, so, gotcha. so that, that's Britain. But you've got Britain, as I said, you've got Mexico, you've got Italy, you've got Spain. Uh, I, I forget the, the fifth one, but um, um. Our fees, based bearing in mind the uh, the uh, renewals and the new races, um, I don't have the precise figure to hand. I could get it, but um, I believe that we had an uplift next year in fees, somewhere in the order. And this is combined total fees, not just. Well, actually, this was from those five races. I think we had combined. uh, uplift on them of something in the order of $15, $16 million, which is, just, is a tiny amount. And that's, that's including the new races and the, and the deals that were re-signed. So, you know, you're talking an additional two races giving $16 million. Well, in previous years, you had um, uh, an uplift per race of around 30, because that was the going rate for a race. That was all. The wow. So, uh, you know, you know, now you've got uh, an additional race this year and you're getting back and a lot of, uh, renewals, which also should, this would historically have led to, uh, increases, but you're getting these, uh, these all these new renewals, new races so far in the order of, I think it was $16 million. So in terms of races, that is essentially going into reverse. Um, not necessarily as an overall total, but in terms of growing calendar and, uh, and and getting, uh, a a commensurate, uh, what would have been a commensurate, sum for it, that's, that's not going in the right direction, as you point out teams and drivers um teams in particular don't uh want to race at more you know attend more races because of the um time spent away from home um that's actually they actually have a mechanism to uh to uh determine that you know the, 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 to make that decision because under the current contracts which admittedly they're coming to expire at the end of next year but I think, really, if teams refuse to race, they refuse to race. So, but under the current contracts, um, it requires majority of uh, consent from. Uh, interestingly enough, um, McLaren, Red Bull, and Ferrari. Uh, if they don't give their consent, they can't extend the calendar beyond twenty-one races. So they gave their consent to
0: twenty-two.
1: Wow. Who knows whether they give it to be more than twenty-two? As I said, that that's under the current contracts. They come to an end next year. But as I said, I mean, even if that clause isn't in the new uh, contract. Ultimately, if the teams refuse to race, then you're not going to race it more, more than uh, whatever they say, really. So that essentially, races, that's not looking hot. Look at broadcasting revenue. We've discussed where F1 TV is up to or where it isn't up to, uh, in fact. Um, and then, you know, most of the Formula 1, I, f- I forget the precise number, is available in something like 200-plus territories around the world. In other words, it's kind of saturated. And the major markets that can support pay TV Already have it because, of course, you can move from pay TV from free to air to pay TV, and get a big boost financially because pay TV operators have got a lot of free capital from uh, cash from uh, subscribers. They've got a lot of cash flow from subscribers. They they need to use it usually to uh, pay for new um, properties, TV properties uh, that are going to attract new subscribers. And as you said yourself earlier, live sport is a big one. So you can usually move from pay from free to air to pay TV and get a financial boost. But as I said, F1 is available on pay TV in most of the um, most major markets that, that could li- li- already support it. And so that's kind of, there's not much room for growth there. Um, and also Liberty has to play a bit of a careful game because the more you put F1 on uh, pay TV anyway, the harder it is for fans to watch it, which is, of course, the other issue we were discussing. So I don't see much growth from uh, pay TV uh, in terms of the, the, the terrestrial, let's say, traditional TV uh, market, so that covers TV, it covers the uh, races we covered, as I said, that's kind of going backwards more than, more than forwards, or only forwards in a, t- a tiny degree, um, and then you look at the other pillar, which is um, advertising and sponsorship, and Chase Carey himself has actually openly said on several occasions in the past 12 months that that is not going in the direction they expected, they haven't signed any major new deals, and they hired a load of new sponsorship uh, stuff. Um, who they expected would deliver new, be able to deliver new deals um, because essentially they were told that all it needed was to hire new stuff. Um, they were clearly ill-advised. They hired the new stuff. They've not really generated new deals. So again, there's no growth in sight in the, the sponsorship. So they're the three big pillars. The only remaining ones are miscellaneous, a bit of corporate hospitality, a bit of freight here and there. I mean, this is the problem that I think Formula One is facing is that It's not going in the wrong direction to the extent that there has been growth. Growth, however, is uh, tiny, and you know I'm looking at uh, and expecting, you know, kind of very low double-digit millions growth in the you know in the next few years. I don't see where anything more than that would come from. Um, So the difficulty with that is, although it's growth, it's tiny. Um, Liberty Media. Paid $4.6 billion for Formula One. They didn't put in much cash, admittedly, personally, in terms of them as a company, but they still paid an overall commitment of, made an overall commitment of $4.6 billion. Then, if you included the debt, it goes uh, uh, up to a, uh, um, a a total value of uh, if even more than that, to about $8 billion. Um, So, you know, it's a big commitment, um, and they didn't do that to get, you know, $15 million of top-line growth, you know, kind of $20 million top-line growth every year, I mean, and then to make losses. The only real way that I foresee, uh, and this is just my opinion, but the only real way that I foresee Liberty to be able to make a, uh, you know, the turbocharged return that they're looking for is by selling Formula 1. That's not straightforward because um, you need a buyer that's prepared to pay for it. But it could perhaps explain why they are so uh, insistent on boasting about the, uh, uh, the popularity, the increase in popularity of the sport, because it gives the, the impression that they have made a, a, a major uh, impact on the, uh, the business and. If they were to sell it, they could say, you know, look how we've transformed it. There's no doubt that they've transformed the uh, the, the popularity, but it's, it's not had an impact on the bottom line.
0: And if you measure popularity purely through television ratings, and as we spoke to a <laughs> minute ago, if your television contract nets you zero in potentially one of your biggest markets, then that's not potentially healthy or sustainable either. I, I want to be really respectful of your time, and, and I know you put in a huge day at work, but I've got one last question for you. Sure. This is an interesting one, and it sparked a lot of blowback earlier in the year, and probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, we began to see individual nation states begin to regulate against tobacco companies, marketing and advertising via professional sports. And Yeah principally seen or witnessed through motorsports. But we'd obviously seen it flushed out of Formula One. But in the last couple of years, Marlboro via Mission Winnow on the Ferrari cars and A Better Tomorrow, uh, really the British American Tobacco Company on McLaren, have begun to make something of, of a comeback. And I think in some circles, there's been some resistance, some opposition and some blowback against Formula One and against these teams for there's not so subtle nod to the past and the fact that they are partnering with tobacco companies, regardless of what their motivation or their intent is. Is this something that maybe the sport would see more of, or are these sponsorships, these tie-ups so valuable to the teams that this is simply something that a McLaren or even a large organization like a Ferrari simply couldn't walk away from when the, when the contract's on the table. Yeah. I
1: mean, I think it's, it's that that, that latter is uh, certainly the key driving force. I mean, McLaren, um, it's, <laughs> it's difficulties that are well, have been well documented. And, uh, although Ferrari has been better off than McLaren, I mean, Ferrari is in a constant, has a constant need to try and win the championship. And that takes money in Formula One term. terms. So I don't think either of the teams could walk away from the money on the table. Um, but I think that, um, I think at the time it was, let's say vaping was in vogue. Obviously, well, not obviously, but I mean, in recent months, it certainly doesn't seem to be going in that direction. So, I mean, I think that whole landscape could change relatively quickly, and you know, we might see, be seeing the end of those sponsors. Time will tell.
0: Interesting, and and for our listeners, uh, both both Marlboro and British American Tobacco companies that have have a legacy of involvement in the sport. BAT, in fact, had previously owned a Formula One team. They they'd partnered with a couple of the more dominant or more, I would say, commonly known manufacturers in Ferrari and McLaren and they'd had messaging on the car that was really designed to grow their business away from I I think traditional tobacco right like I I think the understanding is that Mission Winnow and A Better Tomorrow were really about driving their existing consumers although maybe inadvertently or maybe intentionally a younger demo into the vaping products correct?
1: Yeah I mean I think that's I mean particularly obviously when the changes that Liberty has made um, in terms of Formula One's overall uh positioning i mean it's it, it, that's obviously the demographic that they're looking to attract so i mean i don't see how it helps liberty, but you know obviously they they weren't required to give they didn't have to give the green light to those sponsorships but i mean I think potentially regulation could put the brakes on them on its own we'll
0: see. And I I think we already see that in many markets. I I know in Australia, neither company wore that, neither Ferrari nor McLaren wore those brandings on their car. And we, of course, saw that in a number of European races and in Canada as well, where uh, domestic or national regulation or legislation effectively prohibits the cars from being able to to bear that. So it'll be interesting if we see it washed out. But for me, just as a fan and not somebody that's invested in the tobacco industry, I, I thought it was a little bit, I didn't like the optics of the cars wearing it, especially when it was so obvious what the what the tobacco producers were attempting to do here. Christian, I again, yeah. I know it's incredibly late I, on your side yeah. of the Atlantic. I I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Um, did you want to share maybe your Twitter handle, um, the Formula Money website, or any yeah. other ways that people could consume a lot of the great content that you and your team are building? No no problem. Thank you very much. I mean, look, we're at
1: uh, Formula Money, and then it's formulamoney.com. So, uh, you know, follow us there, and there's much more coming up.
0: That's fantastic. We, I, I know you're working on some interesting stuff. I, I know you put a ton yeah. of energy into uh, some recent work around the FIA in Syria, which I, yeah. I continue yeah. to hope to learn more about. With that, I, again, I can't thank you enough for joining. No problem.
1: Okay, well, look, thanks very much, and then we'll hopefully speak again in the future.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, and have a, a great night. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. If it's not clear now, One of the things that I find most exciting about sport and sports is the business side, and that certainly applies to Formula One. To give everyone a little bit of context, Formula One's healthy. It's a big-time business. Last year, it generated roughly $1.8 billion in global revenues. That was plus 44 versus 2017, but it did post a $68 million operating loss. As Christian writes in Forbes, that $1.8 billion tally for 2018 was also $200 million U.S. short of what investment bank Morgan Stanley had predicted. So obviously the markets have high expectations for Formula One, investment banks have, investors have, and I think Liberty Media, the group themselves led by Chase Carey, also have really high expectations for what this sport's capable of doing. But to kind of reflect back on our conversation it's not really clear how they're going to be able to achieve those huge revenue objectives last year as well and this is interesting the sport posted 610 620 million dollars from hosting fees and you can't really grow hosting fees without adding races or squeezing more revenue out of existing events and as christian spoke to a lot of the races that are re-upping or having contracts renewed are actually renewing at a lower rate so again it's super super interesting it'll be really interesting in the future to watch how formula one develops its digital media and streaming strategy and it's also going to be interesting to see what impact if any the 2021 regulations have on the sport and viewership and the sport's ability to monetize So that's all I got. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us for the special edition podcast. We'll be back soon. Until then, peace. Thanks everyone for joining us. You have been a great audience. This is Sarah signing off at Flash F1 with Dylan Marks.